What makes grace amazing is how continuous it is, as John just prayed, and how abundant and available it is, and how undeserving we are. That's why it is grace. Otherwise, it would just be, you know, a benefit. But it's grace because it's the opposite of what we deserve. And that's incredible news. If we really think about who we are, where we've been, what we've done, and the fact that we still have this grace given to us, it's really the best news. And it's difficult for us to find good news. We're watching, we're probably sick of turning on the news or even pulling up uh, web reports or things these days because everything that we seem to hear is chaos and dismantling and not going well. And there's an overarching uh, pessimism that we, uh, for the most part, walk around in in this dome uh, we call human existence where we're thinking, this is it, it's not going to get any better. I don't know where this is going. I don't see how this can improve. We have... We have fallen prey, if you will, to the negativity of hopelessness that our society is experiencing on full display each and every week right on our screens. So where we go for our news tells us a lot about us. You guys will inform uh, subtle clues about who the person is you're talking to based on, I saw this report on such and such a cable network or or this one, or I heard this uh, talk radio guy say this. Sorry, I'm getting a little froggy. And so we start to inform our opinions. We know what aspect of life you're coming from based on some subtle tells or simple clues like that. A year ago in January, I believe it was in January, we rolled out what would be the focus of the preaching and the teaching and the ministering of faith. Uh, and, and, and we focused on this one word over and over and over again. We said that we would, we would live by, adhere to, teach, talk through the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Everything we would approach would be through the lenses and under the instruction and the guidance of the gospel. And we define that word and we redefine that word and we wrestle to continue to define that word. But gospel is translated just simply good news. That's what it means. So as we are struggling to find good news in all the outlets that are letting us down, and as we are watching institutions of the structure of society break down before our very eyes, we're going, well, where do we turn for some good news? And and this is more than the feel-good story that the news networks will put at the end of their broadcast. They've spent 28 minutes telling you the world is burning, but we're going to tell you this story about a dog that wandered 150 miles to find his owner. And you're supposed to feel good about life because that dog found his owner. You see, it's upside down. It's inside out. If we don't have a framework more reliable and trustworthy to adhere our, 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 um, our hearts to and our conscience to, we're going to be floundering. We'll be dragged through that roller coaster of the, of the emotion that society is telling us we're supposed to have at any given moment, which is a danger. This is how we defined the gospel a year ago, and I still love this definition. We've repeated it a couple of times since then. It's given to us by David Platt, a very well-recognized um, pastor and author. And he says the gospel is... The good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, 
to bear his wrath, to bear the father's wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection. So that everyone who turns, here's the amazing grace, here's the good news of the gospel message. So that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. Amazing grace that can't be uh, uh, torn apart, that, that we can't be um, extricated from the, from the love and the, and the, and the protection the ownership of God the Father, as we've been discussing the last couple of weeks. We saw already last week, and we emphasized to a greater detail, the fact that Jesus is the capital L, light of the world. And he is the physical expression of God's glory. So those that had, had heard of God's glory or experienced it from a distance or, or ran away in fear saw it now in the person of Jesus Christ, and you could approach it. And Jesus was the physical expression of God's intellect and his, his wisdom and his knowledge of all things. And of course, his holiness, this perfect standard in the, in the package of Jesus of Nazareth has arrived and now we can't impress ourselves, we can't impress one another because the perfect standard has arrived. And because he is the true life, he leads us unfailingly out of our present darkness into paths of peace and righteousness. Jesus is the lantern or even the megawatt, um, brilliant, bright, pure light that shines the light on the path in which we should go. In particular, we looked at uh, verses four and five out of John chapter one that say to us that in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So now we jump ahead. We're going to look at just a handful of verses in our text. We'll use some other ones to support where we're going. But in John chapter 1, we're going to concentrate this week on 11 through 13. And we're going to see what uh, John has, has, is, is encouraging us and helping us understand of more of who Jesus is and why that has any practical implication to you and me. So verses 11 through 13 are thus. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In our text in the last couple of weeks, since we've started John 1, we've seen this repetitive um, pattern that's happening, and I've referenced it a couple of times. We see that the light and the word was revealed then that light was rejected by his creation, but it wasn't rejected by all. Some received him. We see this pattern playing out in this text, and we're going to kind of beat this drum over and over and over again in order to understand what's going on and how you and I are those same people that were back then. We have that same uh, responsibility or opportunity to receive and not reject the light that is shining in our life. So we have to protect ourselves from seeing this as a historical event and seeing that the light is still being revealed and people are still rejecting him, but some are still receiving him. And that phrase, as he says, he came into his own, uh, he came into his own. What is, what is revealing here is that he's coming to his own creation or it's actually could even be uh, interpreted in uh, property. 
So Jesus, we know, we saw a couple weeks ago that he is the, the spoken creative power of God, that he spoke things into existence, that the word, capital W, said exist, and it came to being his, his creative power. And it says that he came into that which he made, his own property, his own possession, his own handiwork. It takes us from this general arrival that he just, he showed up, so now we start understanding the personal implications. If you come to the place that you've made, you've invested your time or your efforts or something, it has something of great meaning to you. He didn't just arrive at a distant planet. This was his creation. This mattered to him. And Jesus arrives. He came into the world. This is a more personal, perhaps even a more loving tone uh, that John is trying to portray for us here is that Jesus didn't show up some stranger. He knew this globe better than you do. And this starts to mess with the pagan or the Gnostic mindset that was listening to uh, John's teaching of the time. Because what's going on is they understood that there was some, some moving force in the universe, if you will. They referred to it as the Logos, which is what is translated the word. And it's almost like in our Star Wars culture, we'd say the force. You know, it's something out there. It's something that kind of bleeds through and it's something that makes things happen. But there's no way we're going to know it personally. It's not meant for us to know it personally. So John says, no, the word, the Logos that arrived, capital W, is a person. It's not just some force, not just some distant deity or some being. He came born of a virgin. Jesus was sent. This is what the Gnostics believe is that Jesus was sent by the deity. You see, they have to jump through hoops in order to, for their logic to, to kind of work its way out. So Jesus came, but he was sent by a deity and he came to impersonate people. He wasn't really flesh. He only seemed human. And I had someone pointed out to me this week as I was studying this. They said, isn't it interesting that the first attack on Jesus wasn't his deity? The Gnostics didn't have any problem believing in gods. They would be quite um, spiritual type people. Their first attack on Jesus was his humanity. You see, there's two different. You've got a Jewish audience who is wrestling with the fact that this guy that we know is supposed to be the savior of the Jews, the savior of the world. He's too human. And then the, the Gnostics were saying, he's too God. There's no way he could be man. This just illustrates to us that everybody has their own position and all of them have to wrestle with the person of Jesus. Will you take him at his word? Will you understand who he is? And what are the implications of Jesus being, even though it's mysterious to us, that he's all God and all man? How do I deal with this? Every religion, every philosophy, everything must wrestle with the person of Jesus. He is the quintessential lightning rod. He is the one that everyone has to understand. And so you see every religion dealing with him in some way, but all trying to minimize him and package him in something that they can, they can own for themselves and manipulate rather than him being who he is, which is the living God, the creator of the world. 
This is how Jesus revealed himself. This is how God revealed him. Like he spoke things into existence. Let there be light and, 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 and let there be man and let there be animals and all these things. He just spoke it into existence. He revealed himself as a brilliant light. He revealed himself as the expression of God, the living word of God. But as we said, This arrival was rejected. The next phrase says he came to his own and his own people. Now we're getting more specific and most likely this is a reference to the Jews. That his own people that that God had handpicked, not because they were more special than anybody else, but because God in his providence and his sovereignty said, I'm going to run my plan through a specific group of people. And I'm going to do it in such a way that the rest of the world will marvel that they even still survive, that, uh, that they have the, the blessings of a, of a very apparent God. Remember we said last week in Romans one that in order to deny the creator and deny his works, you would have to suppress the truth. So he said, I'm going to run this through a, a body of people, a group of people that even though they're going to turn their back on me, even though they're going to reject me, the rest of the world will be like, how are these people still making it? And some will attribute that to, it must be their God. But Jesus comes, he's the capital W word, he's the capital W light, but his own people would not receive him. This would help us understand a little bit as John is continuing his gospel account later on, he's going to give us a really good understanding of the fact that Jesus' arrival is for all. It's still for the Jews if they want it, but it's moved on from that. He didn't abandon them completely, but he's moved on from that. He's opened the invitation up wider. Isn't it interesting that all things that Jesus made by his spoken word, he said, let there be light, uh, mountains go over here, uh, water be over here, animals, you do this. All of those things, all of those aspects of his creation, the scripture says, bow in reverence to him or, or shout his glory. They, they surrender to his will. He has control, if you will, in our kind of understanding. He has control of all those things. But the one aspect of his creation that has that free will, that ability to accept or reject, chose to reject everything else surrendered to the will of his power the salvation that has arrived first to the to the jew and then to the greek is a very personal act of a loving father who who cares deeply about the plight of those that are lost and dying We hear it in the prophets. Isaiah 65 says, I spread out my hands. This is God speaking through the prophet. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people, now this is personal to God. A people who provoke me to my face continually. He's not saying, well, every time I look in on them once in a while, things aren't going well. He says, no, I'm in their face. I'm ministering to them. I'm showing them grace. And they provoke me, staring me down right in the face. Sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. They have all of these little religious practices and things that they think they're doing to to earn their favor with me or to give themselves blessings in life or to experience those things. But it's just an offense to me. It breaks my heart. The message of John and those that were following him in that time in the first century, their gospel message had to remind the Jewish people that, look, we know we're presenting to you a savior that you've rejected. 
We know that we're, we're, we're introducing you to one who walks on the same dust that you walked. And he didn't come to have political power or to, to establish the nation of Israel just by itself. That he came to save the world from their sins. We know that you've rejected that. But let's not forget, people, that you have a history of rejecting what God has done. That you have a history of rejecting the plan that, that he has laid out for you. So let's not be so shocked and offended that you wouldn't accept Jesus as well. The prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 7, he says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they didn't listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So it's clear from this tiny little phrase in John chapter one that many rejected Jesus. But thanks be to God that not all did. Verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's a lot going on in this little phrase here, and it starts opening up for us the, the idea of how John's going to be laid out. We've got 21 chapters, and it has been said that if you split those chapters kind of down the middle, you've got chapters 1 through 12 in one category, chapters 13 through 21. I keep forgetting I'm talking to you who's looking. I always do beginning and end on the wrong ends when I speak with my hands a lot. It's been said that the first half of the book of John can be um, summed up in the phrase that we just studied, his own did not receive him. That you're going to see so many of the acts of Jesus and, and the response from the people in, in that tone of rejection. That tone of those that should have seen him, those that should have welcomed him, those that should have been looking for him for centuries said, nah, he isn't going to cut it. That we see this playing out in the first half of John. And then the rest of the letter is more focused on this phrase, but to all who did receive him, dot, dot, dot. John is laying out to us a very simple requirement. If we are to deal with the person of Jesus, and if you say, I don't want to be one of the ones who rejects him, what do I do? John very simply says, believe. I didn't say it was easy. We've got a problem with that throughout the decades, especially in the church of Jesus Christ, that we've made everything easy. It's really, really easy. Just pray a prayer, invite Jesus in, and you'll figure out the rest. He'll do some things in you, sprinkle some magic fairy dust on you, and your life will go great. Or, uh, or if you follow him, you know, this is why I was kind of beating up that statement a week or so ago where we said, just give your life to Jesus. Or it sounds like all you need is Jesus. And we don't really give any supporting reason as to why does Jesus radically transform the heart? Why does he give us a living hope? How does it show up practically? If we just think this is something easy to do, then we have a tendency to find that it's easy to leave as well relationships in general, not even one with the living God, but relationships in general that are easy to get in and out of are typically left because we don't like things that aren't easy. 
This is not in my notes. I had no intention of saying this, but that's one of the reasons why we encourage people not to uh, engage in living together outside of wedlock. We have said as churches for a long, long time, because it's not good, because God doesn't allow it. But practically, why? Why wouldn't God allow it? God gives reasons and he gives hope and blessing for all of his rules. Why would he care about this? It's because the relationships that are easy to get in into are easy to get out of. And then the ones that are difficult, the ones that we covenant in, the ones that we, that we give commitment to are harder to get out of. We have to go through a lot of other things and a lot of other wrestlings. So our statement from John about receiving Jesus is not meant to be easy, but it is simple. It's not complicated. We have a history of religion complicating this idea of belief. Do this, do this, do this, jump through this hoop, do all these things, spend this much money, go to church this many times. This is complicating this idea of belief. John says, if you receive him, you believe in his name. You know people, no doubt, that are okay with the name of Jesus. They're okay with the fact that you're here or that you're watching. You might have even invited somebody to watch and they're okay with that invitation and they might be watching now. I want you to understand that being okay with the name of Jesus, not being offended by the fact that there's a religious presence in your country or something isn't the same as believing. Acknowledging Jesus by name, acknowledging and believing in his name or receiving him isn't just a mental assent that he existed. And a lot of times we in the faith will take that as a win, right? We're like, okay, they didn't hate me. I'm okay with that. And that's a good thing. That's a blessing. But it doesn't make it personal to them. Being okay that Jesus was truly a historical figure or he was a good man or a good teacher or a great example for us to follow or I'm glad you found him. You seem to have needed that. It's certainly not hostile. That's fun but it doesn't make it personal for the person who just acknowledges he's real. Believing or receiving him in his name is more than intellectual acknowledgement. You believe in the character of his person or the totality of his being. As we said before, he is both fully God and fully man in ways that kind of blow our mind, in ways that's very difficult for us to understand or even explain. Theologians have said it's like, Union without fusion, he comes together in God and man, but he's not so intricately linked, you can't tell the difference between the two. Or it's distinction without separation, so I can understand that he is both God and both man, but he's not separate, he's not only man or only God at some point in time. Today I'm going to be God, tomorrow I'm going to be man. None of that kind of thing going on. He is both. So believing equals receiving or vice versa. Theologian uh, D.A. Carson says this, that believing or receiving yields allegiance to the capital W word. Focus on that word allegiance for a second. What does it mean for you and I to offer or surrender our allegiance to Jesus, the son of God and the son of man? 
We have our favorite sports teams. Everything's weird in sports right now. We're seeing things all played out really, really differently. We've got football going on. Our teams either make it or they don't. If, you know, depending on who you root for and things, we understand there's some aspect of, of, of an entry level allegiance when it comes to things like our, our favorite teams or our alma maters or things along those lines. We'll even stick with them in the lean years. If, I'm alle- if, if I have an allegiance to my team, they might go through a rebuilding season or maybe their best player got injured or something like that. And I don't just pick another team. I bought too many t-shirts and hats. I can't just flip it out that, that quickly. I got to stick this out and see where they go. There's, there's a, a level of allegiance that just culturally speaking, we get. But it's deeper than that when it comes to Christ. He's going to challenge us in greater ways than just losing your favorite quarterback. He's going to require some things of us. He's going to shine light in the areas that we don't really want him invading. Stay out of there. So do I lead, uh, do I yield allegiance to him as the word? Do I find him in his word? There's a heavy amount of allegiance when it comes to the discipline of knowing God's word. Carson says it's, it's someone who trusts him completely. The Lord is calling you to do the next thing, and he does it often in gentle ways at first. He leans on you. He whispers to you. He speaks through your friend or your spouse, and there's something in your conscience that it just goes against, and you go, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I'm just not quite there yet. He, he leans on you gently at first, and then it gets a little bit louder. Because he's in it for you as well. He wants the benefit and the blessing of you growing out of this thing that's holding you back. So he doesn't let it go. He needles it gently. Then it gets a little bit harder of a prick. And then it starts to hurt a little bit. Do you trust him completely? There's a lot of trust in hearing that voice. There's a lot of trust in saying, okay, I'll do it. It's someone who acknowledges his claims. Jesus is who he says he is. We've heard it plenty of times before that there's no way that he could say the things he said about himself and not be either fully crazy or delusional or he really is God. So do we believe this? Do we believe what he even said about himself as we're going to see as we go through this gospel? And somebody who receives Jesus, Carson says, confesses him with gratitude. We have a dearth right now in our society of people who will boldly confess the name of Jesus Christ, who will grant, who will point to him as the source for everything good and all maturity and all wisdom that you're getting in your life. That's leading you through these difficult times. We need to point a lost and dark society to the source of all of our hope and the light that shines in our life. It's him and him alone. So often we say, well, I got all my disciplines or, or, well, you know, things are going right for me or I got that promotion or whatever. Instead of just thinking about anything that shines a light on us, let's continue to shine the light on him. That's what allegiance, that's what receiving looks like. So that's the requirement. The requirement for you and me is to simply believe. And what's our result? What's our reward? Well, he said it. He said we get to belong. We have the privilege of entering into this contractual or covenantal familial relationship with God. 
Remember last week we said it's like going up to the gate of the house and saying, I'm sorry, I left this place. This was amazing. I've gone out and spent all of my inheritance. I've wasted my life and I just want to come back so badly that if you just make me a slave and give me a spot with the pigs in the pen, I'd be happy to be your property. But God says, that's, we're not having any of that. Go pick a room. Supper's at six. See you then. It's this privilege, this, this blessing that we have to those who received him, to them he gave the power or the right contractually to become his children. Now we're starting to see this, this clarity on why the news is so good. We're more than his property. We would have taken being his property if it came with promises. If I can be in heaven someday, if I can have some of the stress of my life eliminated because I have a, a clearer picture of what I'm supposed to do in this life, I would have taken that. But instead, I even get him as dad. It comes as a result of a new birth. You and I do not get life, new life, without a new birth. That's why you hear Christians all the time referring to things as being born again. You who were born A new birth brings us new life. I want to give us just a few aspects of life from the scriptures. I don't typically do a lot of the, this is what the Greek means and all that sort of stuff, largely because I don't know it personally. Um, But I feel like it's, it's very important to look at the three aspects of this word life that the scriptures talk about. So let's be a little bit studious for a second here and get some understanding or some meaning of what, what real life, what new life has been given to us from the scriptures. And this is also a good reason why if you, if you didn't notice them or you're not in the habit of grabbing notes as you come in, or if you're watching online, getting them off of the, uh, the comment feed and things, um, trying to give you guys the tools so that you can go back and revisit this, or you can see some of these things in print and it just helps us retain it a little bit better if you're that kind of learner. Life in the scriptures covers a lot of different gamuts. The first word is, is bios or bio where we would get our word biology, and that's referring to a physical heart pumping. You know, this is what's going on in the body. This is really happening. It's, a, it's, it's bio. That's one form of life. And then another form is, is suke, or where, where we would say psyche. And that's the inner you or the, the mental you, the mind that you are, that you have, or the soul that you are, the innermost you. And that's where we would get the word psychology. So there's that aspect of life that the scriptures do cover. But the word that's given to us for what is birthed for us and what the new life is, is Zoe. Or what we would say in English, we would say Zoe. We see kids named Zoe. This is where this comes from. It is a quality of life that comes from God. It is uniquely his. It is a presence of God in your life, in your real life, the one that really matters, the one that you're searching for. Even though we're spending lots of time figuring out how to keep ourselves alive and the heart pumping, we're spending lots of money and we're going to the right specialists and all that sort of stuff. What we would take more, what we would, what our hearts crave more is a quality of life. And and the scriptures are saying this is only what comes from God and this is the result of the new birth. So what John is telling us is that this life, capital L, has come into the world and tabernacled or tented with us so that we could have a life that is off the charts full of quality. And notice I'm not saying quantity. 
more of all the things you like. That isn't the promise in this. It's us finding the meaning that our hearts search for. All that we see going on outside these walls, all that we see every time we turn the news on, are people searching for a quality of life that is has been promised to them through all their structures and their systems, and it's failing and lying to them. It's letting them down, and they don't know what to do with that. So it turns into a reaction. It turns into a response to that. This is the life, the quality that only comes from surrendering your life to the one who can give you a new birth. So John says this life, this, the, the things that can't save you, he says this isn't going to come of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man. Those things have promised us a lot of things and all of them have lied to us and failed us. He says this is not of blood, which is a more of an, an aspect of race or ethnic heritage. There isn't some lineage thing that we can point to saying, well, I belong to these particular people. Now he's getting personal with the Jews and the Greeks and things. Even Paul had spent much of the letter to the Galatians dealing with this idea that many in Christ were starting to miss the old traditions. So they started to think this really can't be that easy. It really can't be that simple. I just believe in the name of Jesus. What about the old forms of tradition? What about some of the old requirements that we had? Let's bring some of those back and see if it gives us more fulfillment that we're earning this thing called salvation. And Paul said, that's not the way it works. So he wrote this letter to the Galatians. And in chapter three, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're of Abraham's offspring. Imagine how offensive that would have been. No, no, no. We get Abraham. They don't get Abraham. He says, no, no. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, all of those other distinctions wash away. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So John's saying it's blood isn't what's going to give you this new birth. Flesh isn't going to give you this new birth, which is a statement of more personal desire. It's a little bit, I'll keep it PG, but it has a little bit more to do with the fact that we want to procreate. And as we have children and all those kinds of things, that's not going to bring about this new life. It's going to bring about the bios. It's going to bring about the, the heart pumping physical life. And it will develop the suke, the inner us, the, the, the mental aspect of us, but it will not achieve the life that we're searching for. It doesn't come just from birth or my, my, my dad is a great preacher or my mom was a saint and a servant or something like that. Those things don't give us that quality of life instead, or neither is it through man or what he says is a man-made system. What this structures that we build and these uh, opportunities and, 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 and things that we put before us that we're, we're hoping are going to cut it. They're going to finally give me purpose. And he's saying this new life, this Zoe is not going to come as a result of you finding a newfangled system. John loves this aspect of, of telling us that we belong to God as a father, that we are his children. Later on, he writes uh, three letters cleverly titled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's brilliant. And he says in chapter 3 of 1st John, he says, See what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we're God's children now. 
And what we will be is not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. One of the great dangers of those in the Christianity circle is that they are selling us a quote unquote gospel that makes it sound like we should experience the fullness of being God's child right now. That you and I should feel this emotional high all the time. We should feel this connectivity to someone who we can't see. And the more spiritual among us have all the blessings dropping out of heaven. Some of them are saying even literally, and I mean it, like, you know, it's just like, you know, gold dust comes out of the corner of the room and you never have to pay for a coffee again. And if you have enough faith, all those kinds of things coming because that's what it means to be a child of God right now. You get all the inheritance right now, all the blessings right now. John is saying we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. We have blessing and benefit from being the child of the greatest dad ever, but not all of it. There's something for us to hang on for. There's a promise for us that is yet to come, a fulfillment that we have not yet received. And so while we are pursuing Zoe, this life and this quality, we know that not all of it will feel as though we have it. That that is rewarded to us when we leave this earth and we are in his presence for all eternity. That so much of what we have to experience is going to feel like the quality of our lives is really tanking. Is really kicking us in the teeth. That's why John wrote this gospel for us to understand that his promise is true and this isn't all we have. So how unbelievable is the good news to you personally? I don't mean unbelievable in a negative sense, but how astonishing, how mind-blowing is the grace of God, is the, is the good news or the gospel that you sit there and say, I can't believe this is mine. Like, I really won the lottery on this one. What would be, if you're recognizing that this is just is more than good news, I think I've heard uh, Mercy Me, I believe it is, it has a song, it's not just good news, it's the best news ever. Because we have a tendency to water down the word good. doesn't mean as much to us. If, if this really is the best news ever, what is our next step in belief? What is our next step towards the goodness of the word, the capital L, light? Will we uh, yield our allegiance to the word like we saw in the quote earlier? Will we trust him completely? Will we acknowledge his claims of who he said he is and know that he is that one for us? Will we learn to confess him with gratitude, to thank the Lord, whether it be public or private, for his goodness to us and to confess him as the one who saves us? Maybe more simply put, before we even can apply all of those things, to ask, are you a child of God? Do you have an understanding of this believe slash receive aspect of the call that John is giving to us? Do you understand that this invitation is for you? One of our great blessings at faith is while we should be shutting down, while we should have fewer and fewer people and all, people and all this kind of stuff, what we are seeing is light being shed abroad in the hearts of many. We have people that are awakening to the call of the gospel and they are uh, studying the word of God and they are taking their next steps of obedience. We are seeing this take, take place even while it feels like other things have taken a major hit. So then the question is, are you a child of God? Have you humbly received him? 
Do you believe in who he is? Paul says in Romans 1, 16, I am, not of ashamed, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. This power is arriving in our lives. This light is available to us. We simply need to surrender to it and praise him for it. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer as we get ready to sing one more time. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us together. I thank you for the power of John's words. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you moved in his life that you would leave him as such an incredible example for us. But thank you, Lord, mostly that he points to the Son of God as being the star of the entire story. Pray, Lord, that we continue to surrender ourselves to the story and allow you to transform our lives in the process. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.